0: Brought to you by LifeTree at Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com. That may have been the slowest I've ever read. Paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. It is a it is a mouthful. But Jesus is a mouthful. Uh, did you see the transition I made there? That was good. So my name is Rick. I'm author of the just released book, The God Who Fights for You and last year, the spiritual grit. And the year before that, the Jesus Centered Life, uh, the the basic Sort of foundational book that, that that kind of gave birth to this podcast. So if you haven't read the Jesus Centered Life and you like this podcast, you should probably go get the Jesus Centered Life. I think you'll really love it. And I'm also the general editor of the Jesus Centered Bible, which was two years ago voted the number one study Bible in the world by Christian retailing. So what that means is they really really liked it, and so did a lot of other people who um, are now reading. The Jesus-centered Bible, because of its many extra features that point you to Jesus, no matter where you are reading. So, um, if you have friends who are are hungering to know Jesus more deeply, or friends who um, have never even been exposed to really reading the Bible before, on either end of that continuum, I think they would really enjoy reading this Bible. It's highly engaging because of the extra features we put into it. So, there you have it. Today is the ninth episode. In this nine-episode series. I've always promised that we might go beyond the nine episodes if I decide I want to go back and focus on any of the essential questions we've already covered in this series. The series is called Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions, and uh, the nine episodes correspond to the nine questions that uh, we kind of isolated from all of the questions human beings have in life, what are the nine most essential ones? We kind of uh, condensed them down to that number. And by essential questions, I mean these are the big questions we have in life. Um, And last week we talked about one of the biggest ones, which is, what is love? And today we're going to tackle the last of those nine, and that is, what is right and wrong? What is right and wrong? And by the way, uh, all nine of these essential questions, we kind of folded them into the Jesus-centered Bible, Uh, uh, the experiment was, if these are the nine questions all human beings have in life, how did Jesus answer them um, in various ways? And so I just slowed down through the Gospels, and every time I saw Jesus addressing one of these questions in one way or another, I stopped, and I wrote a kind of a little essay explaining how he's answering that question, and so... These things are scattered throughout the four Gospels, so another reason to pick up the Jesus-Centered Bible. But uh, the question of the day, what is right and wrong? Wow, there couldn't be a bigger question in this culture. I mean, we've kind of—this <laughs> this question of what's right and wrong, it's almost like an afterthought now, because no one believes that there's any one, you know, path anymore to what right and wrong is. Uh, you have your right, and I have my wrong, and— and uh, We'll either fight about it or join together to fight other people. Um, that's the situation we're in right now. Um, I do a, a parent training thing called Fighting the Entitlement Dragon. I've, I've done this in school districts and in churches and all kinds of places. It's, a, it's like a two-hour training on how to uh, fight against an entitlement mentality in your kids. And it turns out um, the surprise for all the parents who come to this um, training is that the problem isn't really with their kids, it's, it's with the parents and how they interact with their kids. That's really what fuels entitlement in their kids. And I always do something in this uh, training that is upending for people. I do it near the start after we've first kind of dived into it. I, I ask them to produce um, a list of things that people are entitled to. So I get them with one other person and I say, you know come up with a list of you think uh, of things that you think everyone in the world is entitled to and so they i give them some time to work and they create their list and then we come all all the way back together as a group and i make one big master list of all the things people say that everyone in the world is entitled to and after we have this big list on a big whiteboard then i ask the whole group i go one by one through that list and i ask them are there any circumstances under which this particular thing right here, um, somebody might not be entitled to it? You know, one that, uh, one that uh, kind of pops into my head right away that always comes up on, on this list is people are entitled to, to uh, freedom. They're entitled to freedom. And so when I ask, um, are there any circumstances under which someone would not be entitled to freedom? Someone always says, well... if if you get put in jail for a crime, you're not entitled to freedom. So some of these are kind of easy to puncture, and some are more difficult to puncture. But what's interesting is I, I, I have done this entitlement training for years, and without exception, we can always think of a reason why someone might not be entitled to something that initially you might think everyone is. So for me, this really underscores how hard it really is for people to agree on what's right and wrong. Um, we we think we know what's right until we start to challenge what it is, and we think we know what's wrong until we start to challenge it. So we kind of uh, we're able to think strongly about what we think is right and wrong, right up until the moment we actually pay attention to the foundations of why we think that, <laughs> and then it starts to kind of blow apart. So. Uh, That There are always exceptions, always exceptions, to what people think is right and what people think is wrong, and it's really hard to get everyone to agree on everything that's right and wrong. So, for instance, should people be allowed to own assault-style automatic weapons? So there are some people that feel passionately on either side of that. So which way is right? Uh, What about is abortion wrong in every circumstance? Again, people feel passionately on either side of that and can't understand why the other side might think that they're right. Um, One that gets close to home for me, should smooth jazz be even allowed on the radio? I mean, who could argue for that? Uh, I guess that shows my bias, but um, we just don't agree. We don't agree on anything, and Actually, it's not just uh, germane to our time in history. We've never agreed on what's right and wrong. Right and wrong have always been fluid, um, and the the sort of the, the systems we designed to sort of codify what right and wrong is, they never seem to really last. No matter how, how strong the system appears, it always crumbles in the end. Now, what is right and wrong is a spiritual question, if you think about it. Um, often that question is answered from uh, sort of a religious viewpoint, what is right and wrong. But if you remove that spirituality from the question, uh, what is right and wrong, you get simple morality. And morality, here's a definition of what morals are. Morals are a set of moral principles which decide what is right and wrong, fair or unfair, just or unjust. But morality is relative. It varies from time to time and society to society. So it's interesting that uh, if, we, if we take God out of the equation and spirituality out of the equation, and we're deciding what is right and wrong, we have a wholly different set of filters that are all based on logic, um, and they sound, they, they sound uh, like uh, trustworthy from the outside looking in, but as soon as you start paying attention to those standards, they crumble as well. Uh, mostly because the very definition of morals includes that morality is relative. It's It varies from person to person, from time to time, to society, to, from society to society. And so if it's variable and fluid, then how is it really a marker for what is right and wrong? All of the right and wrongness comes down to the individual deciding what is right and wrong. I, um, I was uh, poking around... Uh, looking for stuff that, w- that sparked my interest around this whole question, what is right and wrong. And I found um, uh, uh, an uh, article by a woman named Margaret McLean. She's the associate director of the Marcula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. And so her whole life is focused on understanding what ethics are, and helping students learn how to live ethics in their everyday life. And here's what she says about ethics and morality. She says we all tend to approach decisions about what's right and wrong in one of, about what is right and wrong in one of three ways. First, there are those folks who think that the results make all the difference. Why won't you lie? Well, it will hurt people. The results are bad. Second, there are those people who follow the rules. So in that case, why won't you lie? Well, there's a rule that says to always tell the truth, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And third, there are those individuals who aren't much interested in either results or rules. They're interested in the kind of person you are, a person of compassion or courage. So why won't you lie? Because I'm an honest person, I'm a truthful person, and that's just the kind of person I am. So... The three filters that people use to make these right and wrong assessments are results, rules, and character traits. And uh, McLean says all all three are important parts of how we decide. So one little problem with that uh, system of filters that she's saying that we use is, according to researchers at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management, uh... They, they found in a study that they had just completed a year ago, they said, uh, Our study suggests that people do not necessarily have strong, stable moral compasses. Oh, really? Most people don't have a really strong, stable moral compass, meaning most people have a fluid moral compass according to the circumstances they're in. Um, I remember uh, I, I, I use an example of a research project that was done probably 15 years ago, with um, theology students relative to uh, the shifting nature of our beliefs, so they decided to do an experiment with theology students who had been given this task of exegeting the parable of the Good Samaritan. So they were in a classroom writing a paper on the parable of the Good Samaritan when um, some of the students, one by one, were called out of class midstream, and they were told that Um, there was a symposium happening next door, and that they had decided they wanted uh, a few students to present their paper on the Good Samaritan at the symposium, but they had to come right now. So um, uh, one by one, these students were taken out of class randomly. They were taken downstairs to the ground floor of the building, and then they were going to walk through an alleyway to get into the building next door to present their paper on the Good Samaritan. And in the alleyway, they had planted an actor who was acting like a homeless person who had been injured in the alleyway. And they did an experiment to see who would stop to see if the homeless person needed help. And the way they did this experiment is they gave each person a different amount of time before they, would, they were supposed to present their paper. For some of these students, they said, you have to get there immediately. They're ready for you right now. And for some students, they said, you have about 10 minutes before they're going to need you on stage to present your paper. So what they discovered is uh, what you might expect from listening to the setup here, that the only people who stopped to help the homeless person in the alleyway were those who thought they had the time to do it. The people that were supposed to be on stage right then did not stop. And so even though they had been immersed in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and they were theology students, and they were about to present a paper on it, they did not stop for the very kind of person who's in the parable, because they were under a time crunch. That, I think, portrays how fragile our moral compass is. It's subject to circumstances. Um, So I'd like to suggest a simpler, more sort of universal standard— for what is right and wrong, and this comes from john chapter fourteen i 'm going to flip over to John fourteen in my jesus centered Bible and if you 're not driving right now and you 'd like to flip over there too we 're going to go to John fourteen and read the first six verses of this. so uh, this is not going to sound immediately like uh, it suggests a universal standard for right and wrong when I read this, but hang with me you 'll see what I mean in just a second so this is um this is, uh, uh, you know, toward toward the end when Jesus is headed toward the cross, and he's all the time talking to his, to his disciples about what's going to happen to him, and they're starting to get scared by all this stuff that he's saying, and they don't really understand some of what's going to happen to him or what's going to happen to themselves if the, these things happen to Jesus, and so there's some confusion and anxiety and worry going on right now. So uh, into that, Jesus says this: "Hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you I, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Oh, I'm sorry, let me read that again. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. Well, Thomas says, No, we don't, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you'd really known me, you would have known who my Father is, and from now on you do know him and have seen him! Exclamation point. So here, Jesus's answer to Thomas, if you slow down and pay attention to what he's saying here, and you put yourself in Thomas's shoes, um, this is not an easy, simple, clarifying way to answer Thomas's question. Thomas wants to know the destination and the directions for the "quote unquote" place that Jesus is preparing for them. He he's down and dirty here. He just wants the pragmatics. What are you talking about, Jesus? Where are you saying this place is, and how do we get here, because you've assumed we know how to go, and we totally don't know. So he's thinking very concretely here. Um, And Jesus' response to this is that, well, Thomas, the destination and the directions are actually embedded in me. So to find Jesus and where he's going, you have to be in Jesus, because he is both the destination and the way to get there. (laughs) <laughs> so you can imagine how confusing this would be to Thomas and the disciples hearing this. What do you mean? Why don't you just tell us where this place is and how we're going to end up there? And instead, Jesus says, well, that those directions and the place itself are in me. So you're going to have to be in me to get there. It's a very unusual way to respond. So instead of assessing... Right and wrong through our own set of disparate filters. Here's here's the bridge into what, what's right and wrong. Instead of assessing right and wrong on our own, through our own filters, for instance, you know, it's okay to fudge on my tax return because the government's full of corruption. So there, there we're making our own assessment, our own judgment about what's right and wrong, and we're justifying it internally. So instead of doing that or trying to weigh the options and figure it out on our own. Jesus essentially wants us to ingest him, and when we ingest him, we get a right and wrong infusion, meaning when we are in Jesus and he is in us, we get an infusion from him directly of what really is right and wrong. So we get a sense, a standard for what's right and wrong from the inside out, rather from the outside in. We get the very source of right and wrong in us. And through the Spirit of Jesus' inside-out sort of influence, we are guided into right and wrong, and we're also accountable to right and wrong. I always have loved um, something that Paul says when he's under duress, people um, are, are questioning whether uh, what he is saying is actually true. So it, more often than not, when Paul's writing a letter to one of the churches, he's having to defend... His authority and his right to say the things he's saying. People question him a lot. And uh, so he's being questioned about whether what he's been doing is right or wrong, and Paul responds by saying, look, I don't even pay attention myself to whether what I'm saying or doing is right or wrong. I depend on the Spirit of Jesus in me to let me know whether it's right or wrong, and then I act accordingly. Now this is like a radical statement Paul's making, um, I can't, I can't uh, uh, overstate enough how shocking this would have been for people reading his letter to read those words, because Paul is basically saying, I don't really care about, I don't, I'm not really uh, monitoring myself about what's right and wrong. I let the Spirit of Jesus in me do it, and I just love that Paul says this. Paul is all in with Jesus and he trusts him at a radical level. And he's saying, why should I depend on my own sensibilities of what's right and wrong when I have the Spirit of Jesus in me guiding and telling me what's right and wrong? And when I do something wrong, he convicts me. And if he doesn't convict me, I can just keep going. And that allows Paul a level of freedom um, in uh, inviting people into relationship with Jesus that that others would be too scared to take. Uh, He's free— Because he's dependent on the spirit in him to guide and direct him. So, this is an inside out way of determining and a dependent way of determining what's right and wrong instead of a controlling, self dependent way uh, that we typically do this. So, um, by the way, you know, Jesus on multiple occasions called out the Pharisees for being sort of over focused on the outside of the cup, you know. He's he's always hammering them for being more concerned about polishing up and cleaning up the outside of the cup, and ignoring the inside of the cup. He tells them over and over again to make the cleaning of the inside of the cup their primary focus, not the outside of the cup. And that's just another way of saying that if you have Jesus in you, if He's in you and you're in Him, then that's the primary thing. Don't worry about uh, the outside rules and regulations and figuring out whether it's right and wrong on the outside, and um, chewing over this, whether it's right and wrong based on your own personal standards, Uh, that's really polishing the outside of the cup. Jesus is saying, pay attention to the inside of the cup. And the inside of the cup, in our case, is where the Spirit of Jesus lives. He's saying, "Um, make sure you have my Spirit inside there guiding and directing you. That's how you'll know what is right and wrong. So let's plunge into a few uh, encounters Jesus has here to kind of flesh this out and see how he lives this out, this this uh, sort of unveiling of how to know what is right and wrong. Um, he does it often. I'm just going to give you a few samplers from some disparate places. So the first one's from Matthew chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so this is in the middle, just for context, um, this is in the middle of... Jesus, for the first time, proclaiming what is right and wrong in the kingdom of God. Like, what the kingdom of God, you know, in that culture, what is seen as right and what is seen as wrong. And a lot of what he's saying in Matthew chapter 5 is very different than people are used to hearing from the Pharisees, who have been telling them what is right and wrong for forever, for eons. Jesus tramples over some of those things. So... Um, let me just read to you Matthew chapter five verse 20. This is just a little snippet that comes um, at the end of uh, a teaching that Jesus is giving about the law and whether he's uh, whether he's promising to abolish the law of Moses or fulfill it and he's saying I, i've I've come to really accomplish the foundational purpose of the law i've I've come to embody what the law meant to do in the first place. But the law is flawed in the sense that it's not me. it's a law is a representation of the values and uh, and the truths that are important to the kingdom of God but it's flawed and now it's no longer flawed because it, now it's coming out of me. I am the source of that truth So this is what he's trying to engage people about and at the end of that in verse 20 he says but I and this is he's speaking to the crowds here but I warn you unless your righteousness, Is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, talk about a scary thing to say. The people were already overwhelmed by all of the stuff that Pharisees told them they had to follow, and and the the rights and wrongs they had to make sure they were doing every day. The Pharisees had taken the basics of the law that God had delivered them to him. The the law was basically. Uh, a, a set of priorities for how to relate to God and to each other. And the Pharisees had taken the basics of that law and exploded that sort of simple outline into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tiny little rules and regulations that were applied to every aspect of your life. So they took this flexible thing that was designed to be lived out in dependence upon God, and they took God out of the equation and said, let's just make hundreds of laws that, that prescribe what you should do in every single situation, exploding and overwhelming people with all of these tiny rules and regulations. And they were all designed to guarantee their righteousness. If you do all these things, you're righteous. So this must have seemed shocking to the people that Jesus said, hey, and that's not enough. If the Pharisees follow all of those hundreds of rules, and you manage to do it too, well, that's not nearly enough. You're, 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 it's going to have to go way beyond that, because you haven't addressed all the other ways that you need tiny rules and regulations in your life. It's just not possible. And, and Jesus is saying here that unless you obey God better, uh, obey him better than the Pharisees are doing right now, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God at all. And then the rest of chapter 5, he sort of drives home that point by comparing what is commonly accepted as a standard for right and wrong to the contrary standard he's set. And he's, what he's trying to do here is really quite sly, really quite shrewd. He's, he's essentially painting a picture for people that, at the end of it, says to them, it's basically impossible to live a righteous life by trying harder to work at it. Uh, in fact, if you worked your butt off and did better than the Pharisees, it still wouldn't be enough, because you have to do way better than them So what he's really trying to lead them to is our only hope for living righteously, where we uphold what is right in our life, is to allow the only righteous presence in the universe to live in us and to live through us. Again, we will understand and practice what's right and wrong, not when we keep trying harder to keep up the standards that God has set for us and that we have set for ourselves. Jesus is trying to say, well, that is not nearly enough, and it'll never be enough. No matter how many of those things you create, you cannot cover every base. The only way this is possible is when you yield yourself to me, says Jesus. And then Jesus will help us to live righteously from the inside out, because he lives righteously. He will share his life with us. And uh, lo and behold, will begin to live righteously only because Jesus is living his life through us. Um, let's flip over to Matthew 12 now. Let's jump over to a second little interlude here. I'm going to read Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. And uh, in my Jesus-centered Bible, this section the section title is A Discussion About the Sabbath. So here we go. At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry... So they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But, of course, some Pharisees saw them do it and protested. Hey, look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. When Jesus said to them, well, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he, he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the Law of Moses that the priests on, the, on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifice, for the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So here, uh, Jesus' disciples do what is clearly, technically, breaking the law. They are grabbing these heads of wheat stalks as they walk through the grain fields, and they're not supposed to do that because that's basically doing work on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees somehow are right there, and they're very quick to complain. They, they see immediately how the law has been broken, and they, they turn on their siren, and they pull the disciples over to the side of the road, and they say, hey, Jesus, why are you letting them do this? It's a clear-cut case of right and wrong, isn't it? And Jesus says wrong, <laughs> and his answer, his answer, upends everything that the Pharisees have worked so hard for eons as keepers of the law, keepers of the truth. Um, right and wrong, Jesus is saying, is not calibrated by mankind's own judgments or even our own interpretations of God's laws, which is what the Pharisees had done. Jesus instead says the standard is different than that. He says, the Son of Man is master even of the Sabbath. And what is he saying here? He's saying um, the Son of Man is not under obedience to the, the, uh, the, the translation of God's law into human behavior. He says, I, I'm not I'm not underneath that law, I'm master of it. Jesus is not saying he supersedes it, he, he's mastering it by fulfilling the heart of the law. So he's saying, I want you to be merciful, I don't want your sacrifices. He, the whole sacrificial system that was set up in the Old Testament, he, it was designed to point people to mercy, and he wants people acting in merciful ways. He doesn't want them fixated on checking off the box that they've made the right sacrifice. He wants people to capture the heart behind these laws and live out of that heart instead of the letter of the law. And that makes it much less certain, much less precise, much less controllable. He's really saying um, to live out of the heart behind the law means to be in relationship with the author of the law. Jesus wants to capture, wants us to capture and obey. The spirit of the law, and he doesn't want us to obsess over the sacrifices that we have to make to keep it, if that makes sense. He wants us to to ingest the essence of that law and then live it out in a wide variety of circumstances, because we're not following an outside um, little rule that was created by men to try to express the law in that particular situation. Instead, we're depending on his spirit in the moment to show us how Um, right and wrong, should be lived out in that situation. Um, A little bit later in Matthew 12, starting in verse 38, let's um, read another little encounter Jesus has with the Pharisees. So let's see here, I flipped too far. A page too far. So this is a, a section in my Jesus Center Bible titled, The Sign of Jonah. One day, some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came up to Jesus and said, Hey, teacher, um, we want you to know, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. But, Jesus replied, uh, Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. The only sign I'm going to give them is a sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights." The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Well, now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. The Queen of Sheba will also stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert seeking rest, but finding none— then it says, well, I'll return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds its former home empty, swept, and in order. And then the Spirit finds seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live there. And so that person is worse off than before. That will be the experience of this evil generation. Whoa, scorched earth. So what? why is Jesus so worked up here? Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law want more proof— that Jesus is who, they, is who he says he is. And when they ask for this proof, he calls them evil and faithless. So uh, remember again now, what did Jesus come for? Well, he came to reestablish a trusting and faithful and intimate relationship with God's beloved children. He came to bridge the gap, to pay the price that we couldn't pay, but way more than that, he came to reestablish the, the possibility of intimate relationship with God. So um, at, that's his mission, but if he encounters children who sort of fold their arms and stamp their feet and demand a miraculous sign as a sort of foundation for their trust instead of trusting his heart, they want, um, they want proof, outside proof, before they'll trust, which is really no trust at all. Really, all you're trusting then is circumstances. You're not trusting the heart of the person, you're trusting that the person will always come through. If you're in a marriage and you say, in order for me to trust you, you have to have a perfect record of coming coming through for me. Well, that's circumstantial trust. You're not trusting the person's heart, you're trusting their ability to come through for you. So they, uh, when when we, as these Pharisees and teachers of the law have done, sort of fold up our arms, stamp our feet, and say, well, you're going to have to give me a sign, they've missed something that's uh, true in every relationship, no matter what it is, including our relationship with God. If our love is based on performance and not a commitment to our beloved's heart, then it's not really love, and it's not really trust. Um, it's it's wrong to treat our relationship with God like a business transaction. Um you know, if if I do this, then you'll do this. Jesus calls that evil, and the reason he calls it evil is that that's how Satan thinks. Satan thinks everything is a transaction, that every relationship is a transaction, and that every other person apart from him is only um, relevant to him um, when it, within the transaction. So... If there is nothing that Satan can gain from someone, he doesn't care at all about them. And if there is something that he can gain from someone, then he might be interested, right up until the point when they're no longer of usefulness to him. Every relationship Satan has ever had is transactional. That's how he thinks. And so when Jesus sees the Pharisees uh, trying to force a transactional relationship onto him, he calls it for what it is. It's evil. It's evil. And when we demand that God performs for us in order to win our love, it's flat-out wrong, in every case, no matter what it is. Um, We trust him, he's inviting us to trust him, because we've tasted and seen that his heart is good. That is the basis of relationship he wants, because it's the only kind of foundation for relationship that leads to intimate love. Um, Transactional relationships— Um, become um, the very nature of their name. They become a transaction, and there's no real intimacy in a transaction. Okay, let's flip over to one more. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, let's see where we're going here. Verses 28 through 32. So let me find that. Oh, this is the parable of the two sons. This is a good one to close on. I love this parable. Um, So here it is, Matthew 21, starting verse 28. And here's Jesus. But what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, Son, go out and work in the vineyard today. Well, the son answered, No, I won't go. But later, he changed his mind and went anyway. Son must be a teenager. Um, Then the father told the other son, You go. And he said, Well, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Then Jesus asks, Which of the two obeyed his father? Uh, Well, the priests and the elders who were standing there replied, the first, the first one obeyed his father. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him, while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe in him and repent of your sins. So Jesus is essentially boiling it down to the very people who think they've got right and wrong all dialed in. He's essentially saying, if you talk about obeying God's will, um, and that's all you do is talk about it, you have no currency with me. The only people I'm interested in and the only people who are actually doing God's will are those who are actually doing things to express God's will— no matter what they've said in their life, if they're actually living God's will, in Jesus's mind, those are the ones who are doing what is right and wrong. In the kingdom of God, um, uh, it it actually embraces a cliché. Actions really do speak louder than words in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Right and wrong are determined by how we live our lives, not by how we talk a good game. Uh, Right and wrong are not embedded in in how we think about ourselves, in the way we would describe ourselves as a person, right and wrong can be determined exactly by the way you live your life and how you make your choices and decisions, because that reveals what you really believe. So the the person in this parable who does the right thing is ironically the one who says, I'm never going to do that, and yet they can't help themselves and they go do it anyway. And Jesus is saying, I don't really care what you promise or vow or what you'd say you're going to do, what I'm paying attention to is what you actually do. That's when it becomes reality. That's when right and wrong becomes a real thing. So to, uh, to uh, uh, wind up here, what does it mean to discern right and wrong in a world that's very much defined by fuzzy? <laughs> um, we, we do live in a fuzzy world where even things from 50 years ago that seemed clear to us, are definitely not clear anymore. And we're getting fuzzier by the moment, right? Um, And one of the backlashes to that, by the way, this is why extremism, um, this is what gives rise to extremism. When you live in a fuzzy world, there are a lot of people who are freaked out by that, and their answer to it is to become more extreme um, as as a response to the fuzziness of the world. But Um, I I think uh, uh, there's a a little something that Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 that I think is extraordinary and shocking, and we just jump over it because he says it so quickly, but we're not going to jump over it right now, we're going to actually sink into it a little bit here. I want you to hear what Jesus, uh, how Jesus responds to a crowd in in Luke chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 54, He's trying to give this crowd a reality check, and uh, he says something at the end of this that's just shocking. So here's what he says, starting in verse 54. Jesus turned to the crowd and said, well, when you see clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, well, here comes a shower, and you're right. And when the south wind blows, you say, well, today's going to be a scorcher, and it is. You fools. You know how to interpret the weather signs of the earth and sky but you don't know how to interpret the present times. Why can't you decide for yourselves what is right? What a question. Why can't you decide for yourselves what is right? He's essentially saying what Paul later lives out, where Paul is moving from encounter to encounter, deciding for himself what is right, in a relationship that is dependent on the guidance of the Spirit within him. So when Paul says, I don't even pay attention to whether it's right or wrong, I just move and do. But when I do something that's wrong, the Spirit is always quick to convict me, and then I repent, and then I change my direction. But if the Spirit embraces and celebrates what I'm doing, then it's right. And Jesus here is saying, is throwing out this challenge to people who've been told their whole lives, you can't decide for yourselves what is right you must rely upon the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to give you all these tiny little hundreds of rules to make sure you're doing what is right. And what happens when you're in a situation where the rules don't seem to apply? Well, you don't know what to do then. And Jesus is saying, well, why why don't you know? You You're depending on something outside of yourself to try to understand what is right and wrong. When I've come to live within you and to uh, be your rabbi inside, teaching you what is right and wrong from the inside out. So the, the thing is here, Jesus is asking us to be active, not passive when it comes to right and wrong. And passivity comes when we think we're just checking off the boxes. If if these boxes make, make it right and these boxes make it wrong, let's just check those off. That's a form of passivity. He wants relationship, which is always active. So in the culture, when we're trying to figure out what is right and wrong, we, uh, we're not passive. We essentially adopt an active posture in the culture we live in. That doesn't mean you're always critical of every st- little thing around you. You're just awake and alive to the Jesus in you, and you're constantly questioning and curious about what is right and wrong. So we don't go with the flow. We most often go against the flow. In the kingdom of God, it's not a democracy. The fact that most people believe something is right makes no difference as to whether it really is right or not. We don't accept things just because the majority accepts them. We accept them because the Spirit of Jesus is in us, helping us to discern what is right and wrong. This sounds too simplistic, but it's, it's the, the, the bare, honest truth. This is how Jesus expects us to live. He wants us to be in relationship with him that's intimate enough that we discern our way through all of the right and wrong choices we have to make. So taking things to Jesus, what does that mean? I, I, I'm going to expand on that from just the singular, where I'm taking something to Jesus in my own relationship with him. It also means we take them to the body of Christ, to those who make up the body of Christ. And the reason we do that is Jesus said, I'm leaving now, And those of you who carry my spirit will make up my body. You'll make up my presence on earth. So it's important for us to take um, our wrestling matches over right and wrong directly to Jesus, but also horizontally to people who are in the body of Christ, because it's his expression of his presence in the world. So we talk to others, we read, we get multiple views. I think I told you on one of the previous podcasts in the last month that um, I'm in the midst of reading this book called Costly Obedience now, which is addressing the whole right and wrongness of homosexuality. And I've wrestled with this issue for years, um, and uh, it's, it's a good thing to wrestle over and to not just camp out in, in uh, one extreme position or the other. It's good to continue to wrestle with this, but this book, Costly Obedience, is uh, written by two researchers who have been for two decades now, um, studying people who live in a niche subculture that's getting quite large now, and that niche subculture is those who identify themselves as same-sex attracted, but also identify that they believe in what Scripture says about uh, uh, um, a ban on homosexual sexual relationship, and so though they identify as same-sex attracted, they have committed themselves to live in celibacy. Um, The movement is called Gay Celibacy, and that's what this book, Costly Obedience, is focusing on. And what, what these two researchers have found is that this community is growing and that these people are committed and passionate, but they're also real. And they have decided that a life of celibacy is honoring to both their the wiring they feel, but also the truth of Scripture. And they are happy, fulfilled, and in relationship with lots of people. So I think this is a challenging way to chew on what is right and wrong. And I really respect these researchers who wanted to explore how these people lived out their life, and whether it was coerced, and whether it was diminished in any way, um, this is what we do. We wrestle over what is right and wrong, and we continually invite the Spirit of Jesus, who is the rabbi inside us, to teach us, to guide us, to, to uh, show us the way. And so that means we're open. We're open to other perspectives and viewpoints because we trust the Spirit in us to kind of sift out what isn't true and, and hang on to what is. And the only way you can do that is to be open to hearing multiple views in your life. It takes courage to do that, believe me. Uh, I didn't start out uh, my life, my adult life, being open to multiple views. I was actually threatened by them for a long time. But as, my, my, as I've sunk more into Jesus and he sinks more into me, um, I have become more and more open to multiple views, and then I let the Spirit of Jesus guide me in what is right and what is wrong. We chew and chew and chew with Jesus— and with others that we respect in the body of Christ until the, the rightness and wrongness is clarified for us and the fuzz and the fog parts. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Uh, remember to check out the jesus Center Bible for um, the source of all truth, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. Um, the, our mission in life is to embed ourselves right in the middle of the way, the truth, and the life. So the Jesus-Centered Bible will help direct you toward him and to kind of take your hand and put your hand in his as you're reading the bible no matter where you're reading in the old testament or wherever and remember you can find out more information about the things we talked about today on paying ridiculous attention to jesus.com and this is of course that long name paying ridiculous attention to jesus it's a podcast from lifetree you can subscribe on itunes or google play or wherever you get your podcasts and i look forward to talking again next time